So your question is, why do people or why might people find it hot to be called slut? Yes. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Dear Men. This one is super special. I feel like this is a topic that is both important and very misunderstood in our culture, so I'm excited to shed some light on it. I'm here today with Harmony Niles. Welcome to the podcast, Harmony. Thank you. Glad to be here. Harmony is a somatica therapist and a kink coach. Yes, that's a thing, a kink coach. Her practice in San Francisco is called Kink from the Couch, and she is also a former dominatrix. And we're going to talk about that and how it's impacted her life and kind of unpack some of the dynamics around that. Because like I said, I think it's a misunderstood sort of topic in the world of sexuality and in our larger culture. And who better to talk about it than someone that's really been on the inside? Um, so Harmony, I am really interested in your perspective on a lot of this because as much as I've studied sexuality, this is sort of a part of that world that I'm not as familiar with and would like to get to know better. So let's just start off with, um, exactly what I said. I feel like there's a lot of confusion in our culture about what BDSM is and what it is not. Um, Can you just let us know what you think it is by your definition as someone in that world? It is really confusing, um, especially the way that term BDSM is used. It's um, an umbrella term. It's used fairly loosely. The initials stand for bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism, and dominance and submission. So the D and the S serve double duty in that acronym. (laughs) But the thing that you need to remember is you don't have to be into all of those things to truthfully say you are into BDSM. Like it's not a package deal. Maybe you're into the bondage part and that's it, which is totally okay. They don't all have to go together. Personally, I would love it if our culture would start to turn away from the term BDSM as the favored term and instead simply use kink. Mm. It's a broader, more inclusive term that would include fetish play and non-power-based dynamics. And it doesn't have the kind of strong negative connotations that many people might feel when they hear a term like sadism. Yeah, because I think that the the when I hear the word BDSM, I think about uh, whips and chains and Fifty Shades of Grey, which it has just kind of like more elaborate <laughs> whips and chains and riding crops. But when you um, when you use the word kink, what and you you mentioned the word fetish real quick. What what does that include that's outside of the realm of whips and chains? Yeah, kink could be like um, someone who's into a foot fetish. Um, 
It doesn't necessarily need to include anything that has to do with pain. And maybe it doesn't have anything that that necessarily goes along with power either. Some people have um, their love for corsetry, like I do. I really love my corsets. And I would think of that in terms of kink, but it's not necessarily what comes to mind um, in dominance and submission per se. Like, is it dominant? Is it submissive? I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in that definition, would you include like um, fishnets and uh, what are garter belts and stuff like that? Would that also be considered kink in that case, if corsets are considered? Mm -hmm. And the thing I like about the term kink too, is that as it's being more popularly used, it just feels lighter and more fun. You know, people are calling themselves kinksters. And uh, and it goes to show that we all have like a little bit in us. There's probably a kinky side into you, in you somewhere. Um, and it can be fun to tease that out. In my own practice with my clients, I try to steer clear of the words dominance and submission in particular because they're just so value-laden and it's hard to get past that. Those judgments are so deeply rooted in our language and culture. Yeah. So when I talk to clients, I like to use the terms control and surrender. And that way it helps us think of, of control and surrender as positions that we play or intentions that we hold. And that can be very flexible. You may be in the position of control one night and surrender the next. And there's no reason to judge yourself based on the position you prefer to play in. Wow, I really like that. I like the the switch from those because like you said, you used the term value-laden. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, that's really true. Like there's a lot of baggage that comes along with the terms dominant and submissive, um, they sort of call to mind for me, at least like power dynamics that are kind of scary and and rooted in, yeah, just more like, I don't know what the word is, but I think you used the word heavy, like something like around that of like really heavy, like really like meaning something kind of dark and not to say that, you know, darkness can't be brought into a control and surrender situation, but the words control and surrender, they almost feel like more specific and also lighter. And what I find really interesting about them too, is that they map a little bit to some things we've talked talked about on the podcast with respect to masculinity and femininity or that, you know, a masculine, um, part of us that is the part that is controlling or can control or move forward and be dominant and that sort of thing. And then the feminine aspect of us, which is more about flow and wanting to surrender and sort of follow instead of lead. So I I think that's really interesting that those two map to that. Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned um, the gender piece because I think that is part of what can hold people back from going fully into a surrendered or position feeling that like good girls don't do that. Or if I'm going to be a real man, then I need to be in control. Mm, yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause I think what I'm hearing is that there's more flexibility in your world around, um, women can be in control and it doesn't mean it doesn't have to mean something about their femininity. It's like tonight I want to be in this position and tomorrow I might want to be in that position. Mm-hmm. But can you just say a little bit more about what you just said of like 
if you're stepping outside of what you think you should be like, how does that impact you? And you can have that flexibility and freedom, like even in the same encounter, even in the, like the same evening, really responding to the energy in the moment and not thinking that like, well, I'm in control and I need to stay in control, um, where you're stuck there. I think that one of the things that really can be such a turn off uh, on blah, blah, blah. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Scratch that. (laughs) And I'll start back from this moment. One of the things that can really cause like the death of desire is shame and feeling not safe. And so using terms that are um, shame ridden for you is not going to give you the freedom to really go for everything that you want. Yeah. Can you give a couple examples Mm -hmm. of what would be a couple of terms that are shame ridden for people? Yeah, Submissive is definitely a big one masochist and sadist I think both have a lot of shame in them um people will talk about like their sadist side or their masochist side with a kind of like derisive quality Mm. Uh, like that's my masochist making me do this um so I think those are big ones and then a lot of the like play terms that we might use when we're um you know, that we might be playing with in a humiliation play kind of way, you know, slut, whore, um, sissy, you know, um, they have real shame behind them. And, and that saddens me. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, topic to bring up, especially uh, I think the word slut, it jumps out at me as something that does come along with a lot of shame embedded in the culture, but -hmm. I know that some people really like to be called slut by their partners in specific circumstances. Can you just sort of explain why that is? And because it seems relatively common in the, in the play world. And just to clarify for people that might not know, when we talk about play parties, we're talking about sex parties Mm -hmm. and in humiliation play, that's going to be sex play revolving around humiliation. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So your question is, why do people, or why might people find it hot to be called slut? Yes. Okay. Um, Well, that's, I'm going to go like super broad on that (laughs) in the the beginning and um, talk about the ways that power like gets entwined into our eroticism at um, a very young age. Um, because many people have an erotic charge around power and it makes sense that we do, you know, we are born into powerlessness. We are in a, um, utter submissive dependency upon our parents, but we very quickly learn to exert our will through direct and indirect means. So when those actual or fantasized power dynamics intersect with experiences of arousal, as they often do beginning very early in our lives. Our arousal can be intensified. So it's like our attraction comes up against an obstacle, and then we feel this intensification of arousal as when we're quite young. And certainly during puberty, certainly during those times when you might be being like called a slut or fighting against um, the desire to 
be a slut versus the fear that people will think of you as a slut. And you hear that she's being called a slut over there. And if that becomes a word that might like loom large in your consciousness um, and then get attached to these early experiences of arousal. So long before we reach adulthood, dominance and submission may have become established as really reliable turn-ons. And the word slut could get hooked in, in there, into that, almost like um, an anchor. That's so fascinating because I feel like part of what you're describing is a limbic resonance, meaning mm-hmm. something that goes beyond what we consciously believe mm-hmm. about something. Like we might consciously think that the term slut is really bad or negative or has a bad um, connotation. Well, it does have a bad connotation, but <laughs> that it's not good for our culture and it's not good for for young girls or women, et cetera. But limbically, <clears throat> excuse me, meaning in our, in our limbic reptile brain, it might turn us on. And that's something mm-hmm. that I really want to highlight because I think that's part of where letting go of shame might come in. Like you could be, for example, consciously aware that slut shaming is bad and that we should not be calling girls sluts. That's not okay. And also accept about ourselves that it turns us on in the bedroom, right? We can hold both of those as, as true. Do you, do you agree? And do you find that at all with clients that you, that you're kind of helping them see that they can do both? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of the process of de-shamifying our desires might be embracing that word. Um, I love how culture right now has uh, taken the word and, and run with it, you know, so where we can be like, I'm a slut and I'm proud. Um, and as I teach my daughter in um, when she starts to go through puberty, you know, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about um, what it, the empowering part of feeling like you're a slut and it's okay and you can do it well, you can do it right. You can be the one in charge of it. You can be the like creator of that story. Yeah, I really like that. I remember actually a couple years ago, I was talking to someone about someone about being a slut. And I said, well, I'm a slut. I fuck who I want when I want. If that's the definition of a slut, then I'm a slut. I don't, I don't, um, I don't care. Meaning like I am the one who's choosing who to have sex with and who not to have sex with. And I have the sex that I want to have, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't hold myself back from a sexual experience because I shouldn't, or I'm a good girl and I don't do that. I'm like, if I want to have sex with that guy, I'm going to have sex with that guy. And if that makes me a slut, then hell yeah, I'm a slut. Like what, you know, like what in your definition is that term out of curiosity? And then I have a couple other questions I want to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a slut is someone who is um, empowered in her sexuality, is like just totally turned on and going for what she wants. Mm. That's kind of hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, when I um, felt like a slut when I was in high school, when I was really like trying to hide it, it felt like I had to um, be very careful about what, how I portrayed myself or else I would be in trouble. That's interesting. My definition of what a slut is, is that a slut goes for pleasure. She goes towards pleasure and it will be like in the manner of her choosing. 
Yeah. Versus when you were in high school, it was like, I have to hide this part of myself because it's mm-hmm. not really okay. Or it's not what good girls do. Yeah. And I don't think that my own pleasure was the guiding force there. Yes. I see. Right. It was a different part of you. Yeah. I'm like, I have to keep myself safe or I have to look good so that I'll get love. Mm-hmm. So I can't really be as sexual as I am. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of this for men, like shame terms or anything that men reclaim that you find is common when men are reclaiming their sexuality through kink, what do you find are the common terms or flashpoints? Certainly there's a lot of charge around the word sissy, uh, which is something that some men love to be called. And um, many men hate it because they have, again, early childhood memories of being shamed with it. And in the work that you do with people, are are they coming to you? I'm so curious about this, that you being a kink coach, are they coming to you because they want to expand their sexual possibilities? They're like, I feel like I'm having sex, but I feel like it's not as good as it could be. Can you help me? Or is it like, I know that I have a foot fetish and I have shame around it. Can you help me? You're like, what are they coming to you for? Uh, both of those things would be common scenarios. They want to um, just really feel that they're living life intensely and getting everything that they want uh, in sex. Um, and many people come because they are trying to combat shame, that there's uh, a desire that they have, that they're having a hard time talk about, talking about or admitting to their partner. And um, they want like real and concrete advice about how to do that, how to have those conversations. Um, I definitely have many male clients who come because they want to become better dominant. They feel like their partners are um, wanting more of that flavor from them. And I see people making like huge strides, even within a few sessions, um, in practicing bringing out their dominant energy and just growing confidence around using it. And I do a lot of skill sharing. So I can, um, if there's a particular activity that they want to uh, engage in, like say impact play, for example, great, we can practice that. I can teach you how to do it safely and well. What is and, impact play? Oh, like say it's something like spanking or flogging or whipping, you know, something that's like you're using impact against the body. Got it. Um, We love being able to give people like good instruction on that because I've been out in the world and seen it done badly, um, which is so sad. (laughs) And uh, because it's not rocket science, you know, I could teach you easily. Um, But when you do it badly, you can hurt someone or you can just like, give them a bad experience. And then they think, oh, well, I didn't like that. That's not my thing. It's like, no, maybe it is your thing once you experience it done in a skillful way. And I can teach people to do those kind of activities in a way where you're ensuring that you have ongoing consent, not just consent from like the beginning of the interaction when you're just talking about it, but consent going forward moment to moment because things change. And when I feel like I've just read a lot of articles recently, um, accusations of abuse against men who who said that they were um, being dominant. They were just trying to be dominant. Uh, And then that makes me like 
sad and angry. Yeah. Say more about that in terms mm-hmm. of how you teach men or, or I guess the dominant partner to, mm-hmm. to get consent all along the way, because I think the only thing most of us have heard about is a safe word. Yeah. And yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and definitely safe words are great. I definitely teach a lot about safe words and I think that they're wonderful to use, but they're, the issues there are that um, people don't always use their safe words when they should. That's just the reality, partly because, um, you know, maybe they just haven't practiced using it before. So, it, you know, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of intensity, it just doesn't occur to them to say it. Or it could be that they are literally starting to go into a trauma response and they're going verbal where that, you know, they can't get the words out because they're entering like a um, freeze or fawn response, um, which is really common when, um, when you have something re-triggering trauma. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up trauma. I think this is a really good sort of point to talk about that because mm-hmm. you you got a little bit garbled there but what you said was sometimes when someone goes into a trauma state they become pre-verbal pre-verbal mm-hmm. which means they literally don't have access to words in that moment they're in a state a, a trauma state where they can't use words even mm-hmm. if they wanted to and um do you teach clients how to recognize that like how do you deal with because this kind of thing can bring up trauma. Yeah. Um, yes, I do. I, I talk about uh, how to recognize a trauma response uh, and then how to be checking in uh, if you even have like the vaguest suspicion <laughs> that that could be happening, how to check in in ways that um, are subtle enough so that you're not breaking the energy of the scene, that you're not like taking someone out of maybe a really sweet space that they're in, but um, you know that they're still present and with you. And yeah. How do you, other, what do you teach uh, mm-hmm. men specifically about, I guess, either partner, but how do you teach how to recognize trauma mm-hmm. and check in? Let me say one more quick thing about safe words. Safe words are not like some kind of magic bullet or, or magic pill that's going to rewind time to take back whatever the bad things you did that just caused them to safe word. Yeah. So, so if you go into a, an encounter thinking like, oh, well, if, if it doesn't work for them, they'll just safe word, uh, it's make it so that they didn't ha- just have that experience of the you know, extremely humiliating word that was beyond their, um, their comfort zone or the strike that was too hard, um, or whatever it was that just destroyed their trust in you. You know, you don't, you don't want to get someone to say for it. That's a really good point. Yeah. I've, I I think you're probably going to mention this, but I've heard that a better way to do it is red light, yellow light, green light. Mm -hmm. So that if it's getting closer to the edge, it can be like yellow light instead of waiting until it's basically too late, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I think what you just said was critical, which is there's trust that's, that's damaged. Once, once that happens, even if the person then uses their safe word, there's trust that is damaged Mm -hmm. that has already been damaged. 
yeah, I like to use yellow and red, and especially because they're so common in this in the world too that I have greater trust that people will think of red or they'll think of yellow before they they're going to think of a word like I don't know, parsnip. You know, they, <laughs> they will. Uh, it's it's become like deeply ingrained in everyone. Yellow, red. If I heard red being yelled across the room, I would look. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. So. Um, So back to that question of how do you teach a client or anyone to recognize a trauma response in their partner and how do you teach them to check in? Mm -hmm. There are lots of different ways that um, you could use to check in. And so it's what depends on the circumstances of your scene. Um, And how do I say this? I guess the the like theatricality of it. Like, are are you just uh, in your normal Wednesday night having sex, um, or are you in a um, you know dungeon with uh, something like very theatrical, maybe some kind of role play, etc., uh, going on? Yeah, and, and just so, to clarify for the audience, when she says dungeon, she doesn't mean a physical dungeon necessarily, but within the kink community, like when you go to a specifically kink party, it's called a dungeon, like the physical space, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really depends on like, what is your character in that moment? Is this just, you know, you as your normal self with your girlfriend? Is this like you being um, in a particular role? Is this um, like, what's the character that you're embodying in that moment? And then what kind of works there? Um, so I'll just use an example of things that I've done with my clients, um, ways that I might have them check in is, uh, or ensure that I have continuing consent is I might have them kiss each implement before I use it, you know, Mm. bring it over slowly, ritualistically. I'm showing them the cane. They have an opportunity to look at the cane so they know I'm not uh, surprising them with anything there. They can lean over and kiss the cane before I do something like if I'm giving direction, I can say, when you stick your ass out an inch further, I know you're ready for the next strike. This way, I don't have to constantly be like as a dominatrix. I don't want to be saying, are you okay now? Are you okay now? Are you okay now? because that would like break their headspace, but um, I can still be checking in and other and more subtle ways. Wow. I really like that. There's something, one thing I just want to point out is um, what you're describing is sort of like letting the person know what's going to happen before it happens. Like here's the instrument, you can look at it and, and by kissing it, it's like, it's, it's exactly what you said, which is it's consent. It's not saying, yes, I am ready, but it is a physical motion that is, that is saying, yes, I, I consent. And there's something really different about that from trauma or abuse that happens because often trauma and abuse is out of nowhere. It feels like it's out of nowhere. Sometimes it is out of nowhere, but that whole part of consent and I'm here with you and I'm waiting for your okay. That is what is taken away in abuse. So it's mm-hmm. almost like bringing that back into the equation and, and, and little steps along the way of like exactly what you said, which is you're not saying the words, is this okay? Is this still okay? But you're giving them a chance to do that yes. all along the way. What I see with beginning players frequently is they, um, they go too fast 
or they want things to be a surprise. They're trying to surprise their partner um, mm. because they were they want to build intensity by having it be a surprise. But I would argue that you can have better, greater intensity through anticipation and and going slow. Oh my God, I love everything about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that so that we're continually having moments of like intimate connection. Yeah, I touch his shin, he looks at me and gives me just the faintest of knots. Mm. And then we keep going from there. Yeah, what I what I'm hearing from you in particular is it sounds like you're attuning yourself to your mm-hmm. clients, you're attuning yourself to their responses physically and um, uh, obviously with their words too, but there's a way that you are physically attuning yourself to how are they doing? Are they, are they okay? Are they still okay? Is this okay? Instead of what you mentioned about beginning players of like, more like I'm, I'm excited. I'm raising the intensity. I'm, you know, I'm going to surprise them. There's an element of me versus attuning to the other person and like really being present mm-hmm. with them and how are they doing? Yes. The best um, comments I've had when men have told me their favorite moments, it's been those moments of like the quietness yeah. that they come back to as the moment that really touched them. Oh, that mm-hmm. makes me really happy. I felt yeah. my little heart when you said that. Like. Oh. Yeah, that's just really touching because they're kind of recognizing like, oh, she cares about me and my experience. She is attuning to me. She, yeah, I don't know. There's something really, really sweet about that. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm curious in, in, because you said, as you said, you've been doing this for quite a long time. I'm curious what you've learned about yourself personally by engaging in these kinds of kink dynamics. Like how have you grown personally? The biggest thing is I learned the secrets to my own arousal. It's Mm. a simple thing, but it has utterly changed my life. And uh, like, I feel like I can talk about uh, the ways that understanding my arousal has empowered me, you know, for our entire hour. Mm. You know, I don't have to get frustrated with my partners for not knowing exactly how to turn me on. And I don't have to be disappointed with myself for not being like turned on enough. Like at this point, I can tell a partner what I want to feel, or I can set up the situation in a way that is going to help me feel juicy and to have that kind of intensity that I really crave. That is so interesting. Can you, if it's not too personal, what, what is it that, that does arouse you? Is it, when you say that, is it like, I know that I want to completely surrender to Mm -hmm. you. And in order for that to happen, it helps to be tied up or like, what does that actually look like when you're communicating with a partner? You know, honestly, for me, I really love intensity and just that feeling of being in the moment alive. And it doesn't need to have any kinky elements. I've just found that kink is an easy way to experience that. You know, it's um, an easy way to like deliver that kind of like rush of intensity, specialness, aliveness, takes things kind of out of the humdrum and every day. Um, And I'm glad that you asked this because a few years ago, I went through a big questioning around like, am I even kinky at all? (laughs) You know, like, am I just doing this to, um, 
to like have more intensity in my life. And, and for me, yeah, a little bit, that's true. Like there's nothing that's necessarily on the kink menu, um, where that alone just does it for me. It's, it's about the intensity behind it. And it, when I have intensity in other ways outside of what people would think of as kink, it's equally satisfying. So it's not about the kink. It's about the intensity. Kink's just an easy way to get there. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Can you say more about what you mean when you say intensity? What does that mm-hmm. like look like or feel like for you? Uh-huh. Um, that's a great question. It's about like feeling really seen and intimate in that moment. And it could be like micro moments. Um, when hmm, let me think of a good example. There have been moments where I've been in scene and maybe just doing something really simple, like strapping a collar onto someone's neck. And he looks up at me and he feels raw in that moment. Like he feels stripped and like it's just his, like it's his soul there. When someone is really deeply surrendered, it's so beautiful to me. It like makes my heart throb. And then in that moment, like I am really turned on to him. It doesn't matter if he's 70 and not attractive. I am super turned on to him in that moment for real. No acting because I see this raw part of himself that's just beautiful. And it makes me feel so alive. Mm. Like it is just he and I right here in this moment, in this space. Yeah, that's really, that's really beautiful. And mm. it kind of, it reminds me of um, just the basic elements of what are we doing here? Like you said, like, what mm-hmm. is the point of all this? What are we doing here? There's a way that it's a little bit about really getting down to love mm-hmm. and connection and kind of stripping away all of the bullshit or all of the layers. Because what I hear in that moment is like, that's totally him. Like the nugget all the way down at the bottom, like that's real. There's no like facade on top or like small talk, right? Or like uh-huh. making things pretty. It's like, I'm here, I'm surrendered. Maybe I'm a little scared, but I trust you. Like. I'm right here. Exactly. Yeah, I think that really is at the core of it for me. I mean, most somatica practitioners work a lot with understanding arousal. We like to kind of, we call it finding your hottest sexual movie. And somatica has some great exercises that lead clients to just really understand the emotional experience they want from sex you know, either through, we, we get to it through conversations or visualizations or hands-on exercises. And I've just seen in tons of clients, like how valuable it can be to, um, to really understand, like, what's that emotional experience that they're looking for? Yeah, this is a really great transition. I would like to hear just a little bit about what you, what you mean when you say you're a somatica practitioner, um, or I guess to explain to the audience, cause I know sure. a little bit about that, but the other thing I want to just link here is that what you said is 
Somatica has exercises to help you figure out your hottest sexual movie. Mm -hmm. And that helps you identify your arousal. Because what you said earlier is that what really changed your life was understanding like, how, how do I get aroused? What actually Mm -hmm. turns me on and why? And then you can use that to bond with partners because Mm -hmm. it's like, you know yourself really, really well. Cause I think a lot of us walk around kind of clueless as to what truly arouses us. Like we're just sort of Uh hoping the next partner does it well or wishing our partner did it better or something, but we don't actually deeply, deeply understand our own arousal patterns. So I think one of the coolest parts of Somatica is this guided practice of helping you figure that out. So can you just say a little Mm -hmm. bit about what it means that you're a Somatica practitioner? Uh, Somatica was developed by the Somatica Institute, uh, two women, Danielle Harrell and Celeste Hirschman, and uh, they have a couple of books out about it. It combines traditional talk therapy with learning through the body. So with my clients, I will um, do a lot of talk to really try to understand what's the best things for them to work on, what kind of issues are they coming up against, what might be holding them back. And then I'll do exercises so that they can really like learn and feel through their body um, what I'm talking about. And they have an opportunity to practice. For me in particular, since I'm working with people who um, are interested in exploring their kinks, uh, who maybe want to bring some more understanding, because uh, we all like to ask why. You know, why is not always a good question, but it can be comforting sometimes to have some answers around it. And if even just talking about some of those desires you have shame with, with and having the experience of like sitting across from someone who thinks that is totally okay for you to have that fantasy. Yeah. So um, what you're saying is like, if there was a man who knew that he wanted to be tied up, like have the experience of submission to mm-hmm. a woman, he might have some shame about that and feel like, does this make me less of a man? Does it mean that I don't, you know, maybe they even question their sexuality or something. It, what you're saying is even just having someone to talk, a safe person to talk to about that can help sort of reduce that shame or take away that shame just to be heard in that, you know, this turns me on and to have someone say like, that's totally, that's great that that turns you on. That's a part mm-hmm. of it yes, that's hot. Like that's beautiful. And here are some exercises that we can do together to explore what that feels like. Here's ways that you might be able to talk about it to people in your life. Let's practice having that conversation so that your partners can understand like what it is that you get from it. You can talk about it in a way that would really um, help enroll them to wanting to be part of that, to, to seeing it in like a really inviting way. Yeah. I and, mean, and with, you know, and I can even be like, and now we're at a certain point uh, in our session or in our exploration where um, maybe we should bust out some rope and, and feel what this feels like. Let me teach you this tie. Um, That is so great. I really, I love that um, sort of switching it from maybe something someone has shame around to you not only accepting it, but kind of being enthusiastic about it. Like Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. And um, yeah, I just think there's something really beautiful about something that someone felt bad about being genuinely embraced 
And then like, let's try something out. Let's, you know, uh, play here because I just have this feeling that like most of us sexuality wise, we're playing with like 20% of what we could be like 20% of what is possible for us is all we're doing right now. Like there's so Mm -hmm. much unmet potential when it comes to sexuality. I'm just, sometimes it blows my mind. I think you are so right. (laughs) (laughs) So you've worked as a professional dominatrix Mm -hmm. and I'm curious how you got into that and what your personal journey was. Oh, great. I became a pro-dom in 2008 and I was doing a lot of exploration in sexuality in general at that time. I was very interested in Tantra. I was very interested in orgasmic meditation. Um, And I was playing with a partner where we were very open to how we could build like as much intensity as, as we could. And I remember him saying to me once, that uh, he said when I dominated him, he felt like he got the best and truest part of me. And he said, you should be that all the time. (laughs) So, uh, And that's when I started to feel like, huh, maybe I could do that. Maybe that would be something um, that would be transformational for me. And I really looked at going into this business as... um, as personal growth, you know, I told myself I will never do this for the money because it's not about that. It's about me having power and about being able to create a realm where I can be free to completely like express what I want to express. And frankly, for me, it's like I needed some of the um, like clear cut boundaries that kink uh, generally has in order to do that, you know, um, clear containers, like in this room, in this setting, wearing this, these clothes while you're wearing the collar, there's all these like things that we do, these markers that we have in kink that set these very clear boundaries. And I love that because with those clear boundaries, like I feel like I can, I can play so much more freely and go into greater intensity. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think there it's almost like delineating the markers of the play um, sandbox. Mm-hmm. Like here is where we're going to play and here's what we can do here. And it sort of frees you from the sort of uncertainty of like, what are we doing? What's too mm-hmm. far? What, you know, like, I'm not exactly sure what's quote unquote allowed. And so I'm sort of stifling my expression versus we've agreed to certain parameters while we're here. This is what's okay and what's not. And I'm also attuning to you mm-hmm. and making sure that what we said was okay is still okay in the intensity of the moment. Yeah. One of thing that has always been hot for me, like as a pro dom and and now as a somatica therapist, is I really love listening to fantasies. So that's a deep part of like my arousal, my core erotic theme, and I would get the opportunity to do that uh, with clients who would share with me. I loved like paying attention to all the rich details. And then once I got a sense for that emotional experience they wanted from kink play, like my mind would just delight in the logistics of how am I going to deliver that experience? Like how can I create it? 
And it's a wonderful feeling of power, like that I made that happen for them. Like I created this. And when I played with seasoned players, I would often try to like find a way to deliver some aspect of um, their core erotic thing, that thing is that they want to feel, to deliver in a way that would that they hadn't had before. Mm. And that's when I would get the emails the next day where they'd be like, oh my God, that was amazing. And uh, (laughs) can you think of a standout example of that? Yes, it might be too complicated of a story, but I I think that um, one way in which it's often very possible is uh, around bondage. We were talking about bondage before. There's there's so many reasons why people might like like bondage. Like, what is what is the fantasy purpose of it? There's many different reasons why people love bondage. They may want to be turned into an aesthetic object. They might want to feel completely helpless. They might want to like really actually feel the constriction, the tightness of not being able to move. Uh, And once you get into um, what's the reason behind the bondage, like you understand what it is that they want to feel, then you might be able to deliver that feeling in a way that's not bondage. (laughs) That's a um, in some other way that they hadn't experienced before, but gives them the core of what they want to feel. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Definitely comes back to the somatica piece of like the core erotic movie or what yeah. is the actual emotional feeling that you're wanting to have, because that's mm. really at the root of of the arousal pattern. So um, as we start to wrap up here, I'm wondering for people that are interested in exploring this world, what is an easy way to get started? Mm. Um, I am an officer for the Society of Janus in San Francisco, and we do classes and social events and all kinds of things that are geared particularly for those who are just entering the scene. So my first recommendation would be come to us, look up soj.org if you're in the Bay Area. Um, There's a calendar there and lots of cool, fun things. I sometimes teach a part of the BDSM basics class that we do here in San Francisco. In New York, you would go to tes.org. They have lots of munches, no pressure social events. Uh, if you're living, you know, outside of, of these big metropolises, then you might want to get onto FetLife or go to a kink conference or multi-day event like Boundless or Dark Odyssey. I think that there's lots of opportunities and every day there are more popping up. That's great. That's a lot to get started. We'll drop a bunch of those in the show notes. Um, Just want to, yeah, throw that out there. She just mentioned FetLife, which is a social network and you can join and create a profile and connect with other people specifically in your area. And those people are going to know about, um, you know, parties and just they'll, they'll be able to enter you to the scene as well if you're interested in that. Um, So Harmony, how do people also get in touch with you or work with you if they're interested in that? Hmm. I do do sessions here in the heart of San Francisco and uh, I can do sessions via Skype as well. Um, So they can go to my website, kinkfromthecouch.com. We'll set up a 20 minute free kind of exploratory call. So I can get a sense of uh, what your goals are and how I might be able to help you get there. 
Yeah. And I just want to reinforce what you said earlier, which is that many of your clients are uh, men who want to be able to bring more sort of that dominant energy in the bedroom. And that Mm -hmm. seems to be like, we had a podcast episode about stages, first stage, second stage, third stage, masculine and feminine as um, outlined by David Data. And so for example, like you identify as a second stage man and you're wanting to bring more of that kind of fire in the bedroom, that would be something that you, that you do, right, Harmony? Yes, I can really help with that. Okay. I find that really exciting. I kind of want to have you back just to talk about that because I feel like that, that could really help yeah, kind of launch <laughs> some of my guys into the stratosphere. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, anything yes, if you else? ever want to have another conversation, I um, am very fired up around negotiation right now. And um, I have a long blog post on my website about negotiation. I've taught a couple classes about negotiation recently, and I would love to have a conversation with you someday about yeah. like... And you're, you're talking about sexual negotiation, stuff. like how to negotiate with your partner about what things you want? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> all right. Anything else that you want to clarify or or explain when it comes to this kind of thing before we wrap? No, I, I think we covered quite a lot and I'm happy about that. Was was there anything else that you felt, holes, that I can fill? <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I think this was a really good intro. I think- okay, um, great. Yeah, I think just the one thing I would want to kind of come back to is letting go of shame. Like, think about where you hold shame when it comes to your sexuality and consider what it would feel like to have that embraced instead of denigrated. Just consider Mm -hmm. what that would feel like. That feels important. All right. So we will drop all that info in the show notes. Don't worry if you didn't write down FetLife and all of those other things. Um, If you are interested, I do encourage you to explore. I think it's really, it can be really exciting and um, personal growth ifying to to look at this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you do, um, drop me an email or let me know how it goes. I'm really interested in hearing back from you guys about how how this lands and whether you take any action based on it. So that wraps up another episode of Dear Men. We will see you again next week. That wraps up another episode of Dear Men. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Dear Men Podcast. That's at Dear Men Podcast. Or Facebook, we have a group, Dear Men Podcast. We also have an email address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the Big Sexy Dataset, the community of people who regularly respond to the surveys that we talk about on this podcast, just email us at that address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, and we will set you up. Have a sexy day.